Over three billion years ago, two molecules changed the world, nucleic acids and proteins. These are the building blocks of biology. In just the past hundred years, we as humans have learned to understand and manipulate these biomolecules to such an extent that we can consider engineering with them, using a yeast as a computer or a hamster cell as a factory. With shifting demographics and a changing climate, the natural world as we know it is facing monumental threats. Radical forms of synthetic biology might be the way to save it. So have we reached a tipping point? Is now the right time to place hope in this technology? And are their benefits now too great to overlook, despite the frequently divisive perceptions? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug in to Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, is synthetic biology going to reshape our world? Synthetic biology is one of the most remarkable disciplines in modern life sciences. Think about it. The ability to go into the DNA and change fundamental characteristics of any living organism. These are the kind of abilities that most would assume belong in inaccessible research laboratories. But in fact, these approaches have been used by humans for millennia. You might be more familiar with the idea of domesticating animals or breeding for desired characteristics. Well, these two, in their own way, are examples of synthetic biology. So too is Gregor Mendel's work in the 19th century, the man who is considered the father of genetics. He started the scientific community on a long road which would lead to modern synthetic biology as we know it. It's come a long way since then. Today, synthetic biology relates to things like DNA synthesis, protein engineering, and bioprinting. It's currently being used in the food we eat, the clothes we wear, and even the medicines we take. Take the fight against COVID-19, for example. mRNA vaccines are a fantastic example of the good that can be achieved by manipulating the basis of cells and proteins. Synthetic biology is having a moment right now. So much so, that you might say we've reached a tipping point. Have its benefits grown to such an extent that they outweigh any potential risks? This is a field which provokes wonder and concern in equal measure. So I knew I needed to get in touch with a few people with a vast breadth of knowledge across this field. So first, we invited Michael Chen, CEO and founder of synthetic biology startup Nuclera, to our Cambridge campus here at TTP for a conversation about his work. With a PhD in chemistry from the University of Cambridge, Michael has 10 years experience in scientific research from nucleic acid chemistry to protein expression and crystallography, resulting in 12 published papers. Nuclera is the outcome of this work. It's a company whose fundamental goal is to make biology accessible. They do this through the groundbreaking technology behind their desktop bioprinter which combines protein synthesis and digital microfluidics to enable protein printing within 24 hours. We'll get onto the specifics of what all this means later on, but first, I wanted to find out from Michael a bit more about the background of synthetic biology. What really is it? 
Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Can we start off by telling our listeners a little bit about synthetic biology and what is it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, uh, rightly so, there's a lot of hype uh, around synthetic biology um, and people treat it like an incredibly new field. But uh, really what synthetic biology is, is um, molecular biology, chemistry, physics, uh, and the increasing understanding of biological laws, concepts, and how you engineer biology. Um, And it's that understanding uh, that allows us to better build things with biology, and that's synthetic biology uh, in essence. It's um, It's this umbrella term that's applied to our increasing ability to be able to engineer biology, I think. But, you know, we've been doing that for millennia, um, and especially in the past 50, 60 years, right? We've been constantly um, manufacturing uh, drugs, insulin, et cetera, uh, with biology. So I think synthetic biology has been with us for quite a while, uh, and people are just putting a term uh, around it uh, to describe all of the collective efforts using biology to benefit uh, human society, not only from a therapeutic sense, but also from food, all the way to you know topics like data storage, right? I mean, there is something kind of subtly different about, say, farming and GMO vaccinations and T-cell therapy, classic data storage on a flash drive and DNA data storage. I mean, because that is, that is different from what we have done before, right? Or would you say that's just a continuation of the same? You know, I think it's a continuation of the, uh, uh, the, the same thing, right? We've been um, uh, uh, breeding crops uh, and plants in order to serve human purposes uh, for quite some time. Uh, and that's uh, in the past uh, 50 to 100 years have become uh, 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 based in our uh, ability to manipulate uh, DNA sequences uh, more and more uh, from a genetic uh, uh, perspective. Um, and that's using nature in order to create new materials, uh, create new foods uh, to better serve human society. So I, I would say it's just a continuation of our ability to ma- manipulate nature in order to benefit humankind. So there's technological enablers which have made us, I suppose, just more effective, more efficient at doing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And more deterministic even. Absolutely. It's just, um, it's natural as you begin to understand uh, natural systems. Um, One of the purposes to do that is to um, apply it, right? Uh, Apply that understanding uh, so that you... uh, uh, create new things that benefit human society. And that's, I think, the goal and purpose of synthetic biology. And, and I suppose that explains as well why DNA is such an important part of synthetic biology, right? It's, it's this kind of enabling molecule uh, that, that can be used if, we use if we use it in the right way. And if we know what we're doing with it, we can do all sorts. I mean, that's the classic example of applying understanding, which is uh, taking the central dogma of molecular biology, uh, DNA, to... RNA to proteins uh, in order to uh, use that process in order to benefit human society, right? Uh, And I think that's why there's so much uh, excitement uh, in the past decades uh, over advancements in DNA writing, uh, uh, RNA production and use of RNA for uh, therapies to uh, what Nuclera is doing right now, which is advancing uh, protein writing uh, through our protein desktop bioprinter. We'll be coming back to Michael and his work at Nuclera 
later on. Before that, I wanted to focus on DNA and its crucial role in this conversation. Because there's a reason it came up so quickly with Michael. DNA is, after all, the foundation on which so much of the synthetic biology industry has been built. Synthetic biology, as we know it today, didn't reach maturity overnight. And it's not limited to the rarefied science of the 21st century either. Our understanding of the field has developed in tandem with new discoveries in biology and technology, particularly as we have learned more about the role of nucleic acids and DNA in particular. I wanted to find out some more about this evolution in our understanding. So I turned to one of my colleagues on the life sciences team here at TTP, Gary Skinner. Gary is a consultant in applied biophysics at TTP, and his research focuses on exactly what we're talking about today. In his career, Gary's worked everywhere from York to Arizona to the Netherlands on projects as far afield as using optical tweezers to observe initiation of transcription of DNA to applying super-resolution imaging technology to DNA sequencing. So it's safe to say he's a fount of knowledge in this space. How has our understanding of molecular biology evolved over, say, the past century? Yeah, so, so beginning of the 20th century, we, we had a pretty good understanding of that what, what was going on was physically based, that there was some molecule that was transmitting information from one generation to the next. We didn't know what the molecule was. A lot of people thought it was protein um, because proteins are sort of very abundant in cells. Um, but there were some experiments done in the 40s that uh, Avery, one of the researchers, they showed that it was DNA. So you could take a piece of DNA, insert it into a cell, and you could change the characteristics of that cell, the way it behaved, its phenotype. Um, so that showed its DNA. We still didn't know how DNA did that. Um, and that took really the, the revelation was the discovery of the double helix structure by uh, Watson and Crick based on the data um, collected by Rosalind Franklin. Um, and immediately, you know, in their paper, they could see that there was a mechanism for uh, replication and reproduction that each helix <clears throat> determines what the sequence is on the other strand. So once that happened, then we really had a physical basis that we could that we could understand. There was a bit of work to figure out how exactly DNA converted its information into proteins and into life. So that's a thing called the central dogma, which involves uh, a process called transcription, where you make a copy of the gene into a messenger RNA molecule, and that messenger RNA molecule then gets turned into protein in a process called translation. It all sounds a little bit like the advent of computing, you know, back in the 20s and 40s with all the valves and suddenly the transistor was invented. Are there parallels between the computer code and biological code? Uh, very much so, yes. So it's all information at the end of the day. Um, and information can be represented as ones and zeros in transistors or it can be re represented as ATGC in, in DNA molecules. And actually, um, it's, you know, it's the oldest sort of form of information, if you like, that we know of. Um, so it's been used to encode the characteristics of organisms since life emerged on Earth. Um, another application that's developing now is to use DNA to encode information that we would like to. 
So actually to store data in DNA. So how do we, how do humans get human designed programs into biological systems? So DNA is, consists of ATGC, so just four letters, and computer code consists of ones and zeros. So you need to decide on a way of representing ones and zeros in this new language of ATGC. And once you've done that, um, then you can synthesize a DNA molecule that will exactly correspond to the, the ones and zeros of the of the digital binary code that you've written in a computer. DNA storage has a number of benefits. One is it's an incredibly dense medium for storing data um, compared to hard drives. Um, it also doesn't require any power to maintain the information. Um, it's very stable, can last for thousands of years under the right conditions. How accessible is it? Am I going to get a laptop with DNA data storage anytime soon? Um, I don't think so, no. So the, the writing process is very slow. I think with DNA data storage, there are certain kinds of data that you want to keep you don't need to look at them very often. So archival storage, for example. So I don't think you'll be seeing a DNA hard drive in your laptop anytime soon without uh, big advances in the two, you know, the reading and the writing of the DNA. And what is it particularly about DNA rather than proteins? Why are we manipulating DNA and not doing protein manipulation? Okay, so I think that's because DNA is a little bit easier to understand there are only four letters, um, so it's it's easier to make the uh, connection between the, the primary sequence, so the, the linear sequence of the information and the structures that it's going to fold into. Um, actually, proteins, you could do the same thing. There are 20 amino acids, so although that might not sound like that many more, the number of possible ways to combine them is, is much larger. Um, and the, in order to, you'd have to be able to predict what the structure is going to be from the sequence. However, um, we are getting a better understanding of how proteins fold. So Google has developed a, a, a system called AlphaFold that can predict the protein structure of any amino acid sequence. So it's possible using that tool, you could say, right, I want a protein that does this job. What amino acid sequence do I need to create that structure? And then if you had the ability to make the amino acid sequence synthetically, you could make a protein that could do anything you, you wanted it to. DNA is as complex as it is fascinating and is even now being used in some pretty unexpected realms in the synthetic biology domain. Gary told me about a startup called Catalog who are using DNA as a way of storing data. They even managed to store the entire English language Wikipedia in DNA. As a tool for encoding and saving data, it's so much more refined and stable than the digital methods we use currently. Given its profound importance to our understanding of biology, it should come as no surprise that DNA is the thing that got our next guest interested in synthetic biology as well. And I got into it because at that time I was just finishing my PhD, which had been on DNA regulation, how genes switch on and off, and how that can be manipulated by altering the DNA. Um, and I was just reading, you know, research coming out and seeing this, and I instantly just found an affinity for this kind of new way of thinking about it. That was Tom Ellis, a professor of synthetic genome engineering at Imperial College London. Tom currently leads a research team in synthetic genome engineering and synthetic biology 
in the Department of Bioengineering. His research, for which he's won multiple awards, focuses on developing the foundational tools for accelerating, automating and scaling design-led synthetic genomics and synthetic biology. I wanted to find out some more about the actual applications of synthetic biology from someone right at its forefront. What are the ways in which normal people will see synthetic biology in their daily lives? Where can we interact with this fascinating field outside of the lab? I asked Tom to tell me about how he got into the field and the areas he's currently seeing the technology being used for. And so I was really inspired by people thinking now like, okay, we can manip- we can, you know, swap and bring in different bits of DNA in a way that we can control and that can then lead to um, more complex genetic engineering than the sort of things that went on in the previous century. And is this DNA, uh, synthetic DNA as, uh, in itself as well, or are you having to kind of extract it from organisms? It's a bit of a mix. So um, depending on what you're working on, you know, there's there's region, there's bits where it makes more sense to get a company to synthesize it, and there's other bits where it's easier just to use um, a technique we call PCR to amplify it from an existing uh, bit of DNA you have lying around. If um, the information out there on the internet says that the best candidate bit of DNA to use is from, you know, a lichen that someone sequenced in in Greenland, then I'm not going to go and get that lichen and, <laughs> and try to isolate the DNA from it. I'll just take the DNA from the database and get a company to make that for maybe about a hundred hundred pounds or something like that for a gene these days. But you know, back in 2006 when I first started doing synthetic biology, that would be more like. 800 pounds or a thousand pounds to do something of that scale and before that you would have had to charter a ship and and and, uh, go to greenland but still if the thing you're trying to build is the next bit of dna you need down in your system is something that is uh already found in the e coli genome and you have e coli in the lab then it makes no sense to get that synthesized when you could do a pcr and and get hold of it within a day uh whereas the synthesis might take a week and so we kind of talked about getting sequences from the natural world, but what about putting our own sequences out there um, into the natural world? Why, why is there a negative connotations on things like GM crops, but not, not so much about lab-grown meat? Right, yeah. Well, there's, there's two levels of GM crops now, in a way, because there's been a split since um, the invention of this technology called CRISPR, which allows precision editing sequences so you can now make specific edits to a plant genome and you're not necessarily you know you're not bringing in foreign genes you may not even use dna you can just do it with protein and rna components so it's a very transient mutation now i think since the 1990s there's been a, a slow but considerable um acceptance of GM uh, plants, but not enough to mean like you can get rid of it. Uh, you can get rid of these le- legislations, and it, even though there's safety profiles are fine and everything, there's still people not willing to accept it. But that 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 kind of makes sense in a, in a way because you you grow we grow plants in the land around us, right? And we we have that feeling that the land around us is ours to share, and it's something we are borrowing from nature. And uh, if everyone in the village on one side of a field 
is all pro-GM and everyone is negative against GM on the other side of the field, then there's a trade-off there. And people I don't think want to necessarily, even though actually the farmer owns the land, it's not it 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 feels in the community that it's it's a community decision, right? Whereas for consumer goods like uh, plant-based meats, which may contain uh, ingredients from GM crops or from from GM microbes, it's it's a personal choice, right? It's it's been made somewhere else. Um, it's often those GM components are actually made in factories, sealed off, so it's not like you're putting them out in the wild and contributing to the ecosystem and whether you buy or eat that only affects you really um, as opposed to whether the farmer in your village plants GM crops it feels to people like it's going to affect everyone who lives close to that close to that field so kind of thinking from a commercial sense actually you've kind of got this agriculture use case do you think lab grown meat is going to be the hot application or are you thinking kind of it's a gateway to something else so with um, meat, uh, there's basically two levels, right? So there's already now, and reasonably successful, is plant-based meat. And that's not the same as lab-grown meat. So that's, you know, you take um, processed um, com- ingredients from plants, you some ingredients from um, engineered microbes or even not engineered microbes, and you put them together in a clever enough way that it basically tastes and feels like meat. Um, And so I would say of all the ones I've tasted, I like the Impossible Burger Best, which is still very hard to get in the UK. Uh, That actually looks like it bleeds when you're cooking it, like like real meat. And that's because of of a hemoglobin equivalent protein from soy. That technology is is pushing along further and further, and synthetic biology is part of that, and that will make those products better and better. But then the next generation after that, in theory, is actually growing uh, animal tissue in the lab without killing an animal. So you extract some cells out from an animal somewhere, and they can then be grown uh, for for years to come to make more and more. Um, and synthetic biology, tissue engineering, lot, um, biomaterials, there's lots that needs to come into that to make it work. And it's very complex. And at the moment, it's very expensive and very, very hard to scale. So from GMO crops to certain plant-based meat substitutes, it turns out that materials and foods which have been genetically modified using synthetic biology are rarely out of the news these days. It's become much more widespread than one might initially assume. That being said, so much of the work going on at the forefront of the realm is truly high tech. And the technology being used to propel the field into the future is pretty extraordinary. Not least the products that Michael is developing with his company Nuclera, who we mentioned earlier. Michael and Nuclera's work on synthetic proteins is opening up another strand of this field, proteins, the other building block of life alongside nucleic acids. I asked him why he thought that this realm is going to be so important in the coming years and about the product Nuclera are developing to ensure that it does so. Why does Nuclera think that synthetic proteins are an important product to be able to make as opposed to these kind of grown or fermented protein products? Yeah, so I I, I guess uh, that comes down to the definition of uh, synthetic protein, right? Um, What... uh, 
uh, is really key to a lot of R&D efforts is our ability to gain access uh, to uh, synthetic proteins or what people call recombinant mm -hmm. proteins, right? Um, when I'm trying to discover a specific drug in order to treat a human disease, typically uh, you can find a specific protein within the human body that's either misbehaving or if you target it with a small molecule drug, uh, you can uh, uh, make that uh, human disease better or treat that human uh, disease. The issue is... Um, with experimentation, you're always trying to isolate variables, right? You're always trying to uh, remove complexity from that uh, uh, overall environment. The human body is incredibly complex uh, because you want to be able to study a system in isolation of all that complexity in order to be able to get clear signals uh, when you're so, so uh, you, modulating you want, a variable. You want to be able to kind of look at that protein in isolation and say, does this molecule have an effect on it? Yes or no? Does it bind it, et cetera? It, it, exactly. And so what a lot of pharmaceutical researchers do is they find that protein within the human body and say, okay, uh, uh, I want to isolate this from the complexity of the human cell and perform experiments on it to see uh, if I can find a drug that will modulate or inhibit uh, or change the behavior of this protein in order to treat this human disease. And in order to do that, what they need to do and what they're doing today, what these uh, pharmaceutical scientists are doing today, uh, is they're producing these proteins from cells like uh, E. coli, bacteria, uh, insects, plants, or uh, human cells in culture. Um, in order to gain access to those proteins, isolate variables, and be able to perform clear experiments to tell them this drug does this in order to treat this disease. And that's part of Nuclear's mission, which is, you know, we're making biology accessible, and we're starting that journey by making proteins accessible to researchers. Uh, because right now, there isn't a tool, there isn't a rapid prototyping instrument in order to be able to get proteins easily, right? So if you think about uh, uh, 3D printers in design and manufacturing space, or even the computers in the tech space where you're able to prototype on a day scale, that just doesn't exist in the life sciences and pharmaceutical research. And, and how does... Um kind of a synthetic protein printer work? How, how do you actually manage to engineer that complexity uh, from a, any given sequence? Yeah, uh, so really to, you know, to answer that question, you need to just take a step back and say, well, how do scientists do it today? Um, and uh, that's what I call the uh, do-it-yourself process that really dominates protein production today, which is scientists will order DNA from your favorite gene synthesis supplier, DNA synthesis suppliers. Um, once that DNA is ready, uh, that gets shipped to the scientist, and they take that DNA, um, they do some preparatory steps with it, and they uh, clone it or insert it into a bacteria uh, or a cell. Uh, in order to instruct that cell to produce that protein, okay? And then they do all sorts of preparatory steps in order to get that protein out of the cell in order to do useful work. And so that's, that's kind of like that cell factory sort of approach. Um, exactly. But are you, are you saying also that you each protein target you're going for might need um, optimization and special conditions in order to make the factory work? Yeah, abs ab uh, absolutely. And this is just called the... The, the protein optimization process 
to, uh, to optimize the expression conditions, take those proteins out of the cell, and then characterize it. Um, we spoke about protein characterization, understanding what uh, does good protein mean? How is that protein uh, representing or the fidelity uh, to that protein within the human body or within the natural context? Uh, and that's what scientists are doing every single day. But this this is incredibly labor intensive and uh, requires a lot of specialized know-how. Um, uh, it it it's absolutely not true that this this field is easy or accessible. And uh, it's Nuclera's hypothesis, our hypothesis, that in order to be able to get the quick turnaround times, the quick design-build test cycles mm -hmm. within biology, you really need to resolve this bottleneck of being able to turn DNA into proteins in order for scientists to better understand biology and discover it. Better, a new drug. And so this is how Nuclera's eProtein desktop bioprinter makes proteins accessible by turning that weeks, months, years long process into a single day directly on our eProtein desktop bioprinter. I suppose the, the question is what sort of applications could this unlock? What applications could it unlock is, is limitless. And I'm not exaggerating here because when you think about what our eProtein desktop bioprinter can do, it can synthesize, express, print, characterize proteins. Okay. And what is it uh, that, um, uh, you know, th this, is, this is truly different from a lot of other R&D tools that are, are out there because the amount of sequence space that you can synthesize and express on our eProtein desktop bioprinter is the size of sequence space, which is vast. With a product so user-friendly, as the name suggests, it will literally sit on your desktop. It's no wonder Michael is excited about the future of synthetic proteins. But there are plenty of other reasons to feel optimistic about synthetic biology, particularly when you think about it in the context of a new story, which has been impossible to miss over the past few years, COVID. By now, even non-scientific experts are able to hold a conversation about the groundbreaking science going on in Pfizer's and others' mRNA vaccines. And this is one of the most important developments in the synthetic biology field in recent memory. I went back to Gary Skinner to find the role synthetic biology has played in the fight against COVID and just how profound the new discoveries have been when used on this enormous scale. So we're talking a little bit about viruses. How has synthetic biology helped in the in the fight against COVID? Yeah, so um, so a lot of these vaccines that have been developed um, have been made synthetically. In fact, um, so the the Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine is a is a molecule of messenger RNA um, which has been made synthetically, and that messenger RNA molecule codes for the spike protein that the coronavirus has, and it's encapsulated in a, a lipid, in a soapy bubble, um, which is then injected, and that enters your cells, mm -hmm. if you get the Pfizer vaccine, um, and tells your cells to make copies of the, only the spike protein. So not, not the virus, but just this element that's on the surface of the virus. And am I, am I going to be making spike proteins forever? No. So the good thing about mRNA is that it's constantly recycled inside the cell. 
Um, so if every molecule of mRNA your cell ever made was still present, you'd you'd just be made of mRNA. <laughs> so there's a whole system where the mRNA gets um, degraded and, and removed. Um, and the same thing happens to the mRNA uh, in the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so that's a very good example of a, of a, a very topical application of synthetic biology. Um, development of vaccines has, has leaped forward. So now you can make a vaccine against almost any virus if you know a protein that's on its surface that the immune system will recognize and attack you can make a, a vaccine based on that by creating a new mRNA molecule that codes for that protein. The success of the Pfizer vaccine based on mRNA has meant that people are seriously looking at uh, new vaccines for, for new virus, uh, difficult to treat viruses. I know we've created vaccines to fight uh, viruses, but is there any chance that we could use synthetic biology to design viruses? Y yeah, um, there's a very... There's a very good example that I came across about 15 years ago. It was a company called Onyx Pharmaceuticals, and they had developed an adenovirus, mm -hmm. um, which typically causes the common cold. Um, it's quite, quite benign. Um, this particular variant of that virus could only infect a cell if a protein called P53 was non-functioning. Um, P53 is important in cancer. So this virus can only infect a cell if P53 isn't functioning. And it will kill the cell, actually. So this virus normally inactivates P53 by expressing a protein which binds to P53 and stops it from working. Mm -hmm. And then it can infect the cell. But if you engineer a version of that virus that doesn't make that protein... That virus can only infect a cell if P53 already isn't working. Sure, sure. And those cells are cancer cells. So suddenly you've created a virus that very specifically will kill cancer cells. But that's a very clear, clean example where you can engineer a virus to do something useful. And where do you feel the balance sits at the moment between kind of risk and reward on synthetic biology in, in kind of healthcare? Um, I think, you know, a very good example um, where synthetic biology can be extremely powerful is in uh, gene therapy, uh, gene and cell therapy. Sure. Um, so there are treatments where you can remove white blood cells from a patient who has cancer um, and you can re-engineer those cells to attack the tumour that's causing them to be ill, the cancer tumour. And then you can put those cells back into their bodies and then their immune system is now fighting against the cancer. So there are, there are very prominent examples of people who've actually uh, recovered and, and don't have cancer anymore as a result of the therapies. And um, that's extremely powerful. And that in that situation, um, you're taking the patient's own cells and reprogramming them in very define ways and, and replacing them into their own bodies. And these are patients that are that are desperately ill and um, and otherwise uh, wouldn't wouldn't survive. So so that's extremely powerful and a very good example of the benefits. How do we take account of people's fears and nervousness about this new technology? So I think I think this becomes a, a very philosophical conversation. Um, so the, the truth is humans create new technologies, have created new technologies all the time. Um, the motor car, electricity, um, air transport, and all of these things have benefits, clear benefits, and all of them can do harm. 
Um, and this is no less true of, of genetic genome modifying technologies. Um, the question of should we do it, are there certain cases where it's easier to argue that that's, that's the case. So we talked about um, so CAR-T therapy, which is a, a gene and cell therapy technique, can cure someone of cancer completely. In a, you know, give them a, a, a normal, long life. Um, so, you know, I find that ethically easier to um, justify. As we talked about, we've been domesticating animals and plants for millennia. Um, this is the nature of our existence, that uh, we are able to change our environment to suit our needs. I think the the planet will survive us um whether we survive ourselves is is a question so we we should definitely be careful we don't do something to harm our own existence this is something that happened quite frequently with my guests on this episode to talk about synthetic biology is often to discuss complex ethical considerations to do with changing the gene pool of subsequent generations and its implications on humanity's future on the planet and synthetic biology's impact on the future of the planet is not limited to the human genome, because SymBio could also have an important role to play in the fight against climate change, a realm which could truly see its radical potential realised at scale. I went back to Tom Ellis to find out some more. Beyond the pandemic, what do you think about the potential of synthetic biology to impact on, on climate change? Yeah, so for climate change, synthetic biology is huge as a potential solution because the majority of things to do with sustainability, for obvious reasons, are to do with biology, right? Car the carbon cycle, uh, overuse of fertilizer, pollution in the environment, right? If you type sustainability into Google Images uh, and everything you come up with has like green and plants and stuff like this, right? And so... How can you have a solution to sustainability without involving biology? And that is at some point going to involve engineered biology because that's, we know, is the, the best way to make interventions into systems that are problematic. Um, and it's also quicker than waiting for evolution to do it itself. Yeah, but then e even in those cases, if we wanted evolution to do something, we would speed it up probably, right? Exactly. We would go, okay, let's 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 mix new organisms together in new ways to speed up things and that and it, and to that extent, even maybe if DNA is not changing, it is engineering of some kind. Sure, right? yeah. And so we with we're gonna have to make interventions in biology uh, to deal with this issue of sustainability in a timely manner, um, and so I think it's it's a crucial part of um of the of what this world has to do this century around sustainability is to consider and and start to see the benefits from engineered organisms now of course the ones that are probably going to have the most benefits are going to be the ones that can go all over the world and those are probably going to be again like gm plants and things like that right uh, and so we still come back to that conversation that people have to see the benefit of something that goes out into the environment and is shared by all of us. Um, and that's going to be a big problem uh, for people to have that dialogue to, to get that approval. And my fear is it may be too late uh, before we do that. How, how would you reassure people? How would you go about kind of allaying people's kind of residual fears about 
synthetic biology? Uh, I think we still are at a point where people want to see what it's the benefit for them is, and nothing is going to be better than that than giving them a product and saying, this was made by synthetic biology. Do you like it or not? Do you want it? And that, that, that could be a medical product, like an RNA vaccine uh, or a cell therapy or a fancy probiotic that maybe can be... And at that point, you're starting to move towards consumer items. And I actually think consumer items are somewhere where um, people really start to get engaged in a uh, technology because they go to a shop and go, I want that, that looks cool, and they buy it, they start using it, and they realize it's part of their life, it's their choice, and uh, they liked it and, and it gave them a benefit. So I think there needs to be more effort on making uh, consumer items because everyone in the field is like making medical items and things like that, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and that will really then have a knock-on benefit. So I think, for example, things like um, um, leather replacements, so engineered uh, organisms like fungi growing equivalents of leather that are very good, just as good, can go into particularly things like shoes, like sneakers or trainers. And, and I think more and more as people buy into that, more and more people will be accepting what can be done uh, in other areas of their lives using engineered uh, biology. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like we, we need to engage more the creatives, the artistic, to, to kind of think of something exciting to do with engineered products as well, engineered materials. Yeah, so I think that's that's a, an interesting thing that has happened a lot more in the last 10 years of synthetic biology than it had in the first 10 years in that uh, people who work in art, design, fashion, textiles have got more and more interested with synthetic biology uh, and the ability of using engineered biology, particularly microbes, to make new products. Now, what's interesting there is those are, by definition, people who are after hype and fashion, right? because it's, it's the fashion industry, it's all about fashion, right? So they're always looking for the next thing. And uh, and so people will, some people will criticize synthetic biology of, oh, it's just a fad, it's a fashion, or it's it's overhyped. But for those people, that's what, that's what matters, that's what drives things. And the fact that engineered uh, biology is able to sort of continually innovate and make new things and it's, is at the cutting edge and has been for the last 20 years and will be for the next 20 years is is ideal for those industries where it's it's always about like what what can we make next what what, what sort of consumer item would you like to see in the in the shops oh i i don't know i'd like uh, i i love the idea of glow-in-the-dark plants okay <laughs> this for me was one of the most interesting things about my conversations in the world of synthetic biology. The dichotomy is at its heart and its use in commercial and more fundamental fields. Synthetic biology is simultaneously about luminous plants and cell and gene therapies. It's about shoes that can change color and vaccines for COVID. It's a field which is so wide reaching, it's no wonder that it's constantly at the forefront of popular scientific conversations. It touches upon every part of society and will only do so more in the future. And with those profound impacts that Tom says it could well have on climate change, this is only going to become more true. We live in a time where radical solutions are needed to stem the tide of grave threats to the planet's future. And this is a technological field which could hold some of those answers today. 
The question is whether its potential for good can assuage some of the fears associated with it. But if our guests today have shown me anything, I think we're probably in safe hands. That's all for today. Thanks so much to Michael, Gary and Tom for all their time and knowledge on this topic. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week where we'll be looking at another technology that's hitting the headlines, AI. And we'll discover how algorithms might become our best tool for finding new medicines in the future. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bork. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.